Well, why don't we uh, stand and read together as a congregation? Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present within you. I consider it right as long as I am in the earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I also will be diligent that at any time after my departure you'll be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made it known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by Him, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Let's pray. Jesus, we're surprised every week as we come to your word and we read things at superficial level and some things pop out of us and some things go over our heads, but by the time we're done, we can see how rich of truth you have to offer us. I pray that those truths come out today, and um, today is more of an informative type sermon, but it's good to gain knowledge too, and it helps us as, as your spirit uses that knowledge to help us uh, live our lives out in a way that honors you. So uh, we just pray, God, that the truths come out and that we have a, a wonderful time uh, learning about you and uh, your spirit guiding us through this process. So we look forward to our time in Christ's name. Amen. Today's sermon is... Uh, blank on the PowerPoint there. I forgot to give you a title. I'll have to think of one later <laughs> and put it up there. So even though it's blank in title, it's not blank in content. So, but it's been a couple weeks since we looked at Genesis, or I looked at 2 Peter. Uh, so let me remind you of where we left off um, last time. Actually, there's an initial clue given to us in verse 12. In verse 12, Peter says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present within you. Well, the these things that Peter's referring to was, of course, found in his previous instruction to us. This is all about how one enters into a relationship with God and assures himself of a place in heaven. In verses 1 through 4, we kind of looked at God's role in salvation. Uh, we're saved by His grace, uh, only made possible by faith in believing that, that Jesus died and spilled His blood on the cross for us and that He was resurrected in order to free us from sin. So the whole message of 1 to 4 was salvation was God's initiative and there was nothing we could do to save ourselves initially. It was all His provision. But verses 5 to 11 switched to our role in salvation. Um, God started it, but we have to continue in it. And the way we do this is by living in response to His grace that ensures ourselves an entry into heaven. And that was by living out the virtues mentioned in 5 through 8. You remember things like supplying moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and godliness and so on. Now these truths were so important to Peter that he told, he told not only his listeners, but he's telling us as well that, um, that we need to remember these things. It's important that we remember about God's role in our salvation and our role in response to Him. 
in fact, this idea of memory and remembering is so important to him. He mentions it three times in four verses. You look in verse 12, he says, I will be ready to remind you. Then in verse 13, he says again, I'm, telling you, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. And then again in verse 15, he says, um, I wish, and I also wish to be diligent that any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. So remembrance is a big issue for him. He wants us to remember these truths contained in the first uh, 11 verses. <coughs> the question is, why is he so adamant that we learn these things and remember these things? Well, I want to give you two suggestions from the passage. And the first one was found in verses 13 to 15, 13 through 15, and because Peter knew that his life was nearing an end. So his first reason for wanting to remind us of these truths that he wants us to hold on to is because he was about to die. We pick this up in 13. He says, For I consider it right, as long as I am in the earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now the circumstances and details surrounding Peter's death are largely unknown. There's nowhere in the New Testament that tells us when he died and how he died. Church history believes that he was executed by crucifixion under the reign of Emperor Nero, the same emperor that killed Paul and took his life as well. Um, and many believe he was crucified, as I mentioned earlier, uh, for reasons we'll see in a second. But we don't know this for sure, but that's, that's what we believe to be most likely. But what we do know concerning his death is how he had come to know that death's door was, was approaching. He said in verse 14 here, the Lord Jesus Christ had made it clear to him. The Lord had told him at one point in his life. Now, when he told him, there's a couple different thoughts on that. The first possibility could be that Jesus had come to him in a vision or a dream or given him a prophecy later in life, uh, just before he written this letter. And so he knew about it because of that. And it's not recorded in the New Testament or it's not something we're not privy to anymore. So we just don't have a resource to find out if that was true. That's a possibility. But most likely it probably is based on the past experience he had with Jesus years earlier on a beach located in Galilee. If you remember in John 21, verse 18, uh, uh, this is an important scene. Uh, days earlier, uh, Peter had denied Jesus three times, and Jesus had been led away and been crucified. Uh, since that day, Peter had not known where he stood with Jesus. Uh, there had been no conversation about his sin against him, and there had been no reconciliation between the two. There had been no conversation until that morning. And the men were out fishing, and uh, Jesus appears on the beach, remember, and he, he says, you know, he, he's yelling from the beach, you know, cast, cast your net on the other side because he caught nothing. Peter recognizes that it's Jesus' voice, jumps in the river and swims, and they have breakfast together on the shore that morning. I want to show you uh, pictures of where this happened. This is so cool, Laurel and I were privileged to see this. This is the Galilee shoreline. This is... Uh, this is 99% sure exactly where this conversation happened. And how do we know? Because um, Peter was uh, from Capernaum, and this is in Capernaum on the shore of Galilee. And uh, Peter's fishing company, or his fishing uh, dock, was found in an archaeological dig. And it's the only one along that shoreline. So this is a picture of the shore where, he would have been, where Jesus would have been standing, and they would have had breakfast, and he restored them. 
Here is the, the boat launch. Um, this is, you can see the people in the background, so the sea's behind me, and I'm facing where the boats would have come in, and uh, obviously the water would have been higher, and so uh, they would have been able to just um, step up into there and put their boats in there, I should say. And then here's the steps on the other side leading up to the, where they would have docked their boats. So this is uh, uh, found and right in Capernaum, and this would have been the scene where Jesus had this conversation with this restoration. But what's interesting is Jesus said something else to Peter that night. He said something else, or that morning. He said, Peter, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Jesus said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. If this is the event that Peter is referring to when he says, the earth might, I'm going to die because the Lord had made clear to me, then the conclusion that we can draw here is that something was going on where he found himself in a situation where the persecution he was facing was so great that he'd known now that it was time for the Lord's prophecy to be fulfilled in his life. He could tell that this prophecy was now to be fulfilled probably some 30 years later after that, uh, 30 or 40 years later after that event. So knowing that death was imminent, he wanted to make one last appeal to his readers and to us. Not only to remember the truth he taught while alive, but while he was gone as well. So that's the first reason for why he wanted us to remember these, or them to remember these truths. He was going to die, and he wanted them to hold on to everything he had said. It's an important lesson we can draw from this with regards to what the potential reality for a believer is or can be. While there's many earthly blessings um, promised in being connected to God, there's no promise in regards to having a life void of persecution or even martyrdom for the sake of Jesus. In our prayer ministry that we've been starting at the church, uh, we, we had a conversation about what's God's will for your life? What's God's will? Because we, we want to pray within God's will. Well, it's interesting in 1 Peter 4, he says this, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests in you. And do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. So then those who suffer according to the God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Here's why this is so important for us. One of, our biggest, one of the biggest arguments denying the existence of God is the presence of physical suffering and evil in this world. If God is so loving, why is there so much suffering? And, this is a, and that's a good question. We're not going to answer that right now, but that's a, that's a question. But one of the key areas, too, within a Christian life that can make someone shrink back or walk away from Christian faith is basically this idea of suffering. And here's what I want you not to miss. If you suffer for the sake of Christ in physical persecution, up to, even up to martyrdom, you're not abandoned by God. You're not less loved by the Lord. It's just proof that you are His and you're within His will. If he didn't save his own son from it, there's no way he's going to necessarily save us either from it as well. It's proof that we belong to him. Because all we'd have to do to end the suffering is deny Christ and it'd be all over. Another thing we have to consider is that persecution is often what God uses to grow his church. It's a catalyst to revival. Remember the book in the book of Acts, the church there? How did they grow? How did they grow? They exploded through persecution. And it's interesting in churches like China and Iran, North Korea, 
The church is growing rapidly there, faster than other nations in the world. Why? Because they're being persecuted for the sake of Christ. And so their lives are fully abandoned to the Lord. They got nothing. They, like, they, they know that time is running out for them. And they're fully dedicated to the Lord. So He can use persecution to create church growth. So don't be surprised, Lord. Guys, if, uh, if Genesis House starts to undergo some, as we start praying for revival in this community, who knows what method He's going to use to uh, bring that revival around. But we're not less loved by God. We're not abandoned by Him. Because Peter is completely in cahoots with the Lord and they have a tight relationship and he's speaking matter of fact that he knows his time has come to an end. The second reason Peter felt necessary to remind them of the truth that he was teaching was a future threat of false teachers. Because these false teachers were going to introduce heresy into the churches and attempt to draw them away from Christ. So the big message of these false teachers was one we see today becoming more prevalent in our churches. It was this idea that one can be a follower of Christ and at the same time embrace a life of immorality. It, basically they had a liberal view of Christianity. This idea you could be saved by grace, but you could live however you wanted. And I suggest a reason for this is actually because, because these false teachers denied a critical tenet of the Christian faith which the apostles taught. And that was the return of Jesus Christ. They denied the second coming. If you just flip, flip with me quickly to chapter 3, verse 3. We'll see this here. This is chapter 3, verse 3. He says this, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. <clears throat> These false teachers were preaching that Jesus was not returning. And when you look at the scriptures in the New Testament, there's a, something important about understanding the second coming of Christ. Second, the second coming is always linked with judgment. Always. Look at Matthew, look at Revelation, look at all the passages that talk about a second coming. He's judging the, the, the non-righteous world, the unbelieving world for sin. So he's rescuing the, the, the saints, but he's judging the world. Because these false teachers denied the second coming, there was no prospect then, from their point of view, of judgment. And because there was no judgment, there was no need then for a Christian to worry about how they led, led their lives. You're free to live however you wanted. Of course, this was not the message of Peter or any of the other apostles. And that's why Peter uses it in the second Peter uh, examples from the Old Testament to say, don't you remember what happened when they, people had that view and were taught that? Remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember what happened to, in Noah in the days of the flood? God took them out in judgment. In other words, there was a way to live in response to God that was, has always been right right from the beginning of time. The problem was, it was the apostles' word against the false teachers' words. It was their words against Peter's. And so Peter needs to establish credibility as to whose word was trustworthy. Whose word was trustworthy? The false teachers about the Jesus' the second coming? Or his? And we pick this up in verse 16. He says, For we need not follow cleverly devised tales, 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he had received honor and glory from the God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on this holy mountain. Notice how Peter establishes credibility. He says, we are both eyewitnesses to, to him, verse 16, and ear witnesses to him in verse 18. He says, we heard this utterance made from heaven. The event that Peter, of course, is referring to is the transfiguration of Jesus. It's recorded in the three Gospels, uh, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. I'm not going to read them today or have you turn there, but I suggest that you read them on your own just to get familiar with them. But the key thing that Peter says here is that we were eyewitnesses to, his, to, uh, to him. And specifically, he highlights in verse 16, his majesty. So they are eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what did that look like? What did, what did he actually see? Well, if you turn your eyes to the PowerPoint, these are the three Gospels recorded. I just summarized all of what they saw. So the first thing they saw was Jesus' face was changed in Luke 9. It was shining like the sun. Shining like the sun, Matthew 17. His clothes were changed. They were dazzling white, as white as light, whiter than anyone could bleach them. And while Jesus was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and surrounded them. This is the majesty, the majesty, the majesty of God, Jesus Christ, that they saw in the flesh. What was significant about this event was that Moses and Elijah were present when this happened. These are significant players in the Old Testament in Israel's history. Moses represents the law and Elijah, the prophets. So it represents all of the prophets, all of them, and all of the law. It's like having representatives of hockey. And you have Bobby Orr from one generation, and you have Wayne Gretzky from the other generation. And, you're, and they're sitting there standing with, say, the new upcomers that are playing the game. So Bob Orr and Gretzky are sitting there with, uh, you know, like uh, Connor McDavid and having a conversation. You got the two giants of hockey sitting there with this newcomer. And here's why that's important. Look at the players in Israel's history, Moses and Elijah, and yet none of these physical manifestations with the face shining, the clothes changing, the cloud coming over them, they, this was, didn't occur over their lives and in their lives. They stayed as they were. All of this happened to Jesus. The full attention was given to Jesus Christ. What were the ear witnesses to? Well, in verse 17, in verse 17, he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. To understand the significance of this phrase and what God said about Jesus, you have to know two Old Testament um, scriptures to get the magnitude of what he's saying by declaring these words. The first one, You are my Son, is found in Psalm 2, verse 6. It reads this, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have forgotten you. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He 
and that he um, not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled how blessed are are all who take refuge in him you notice what's going on here God is speaking in the first person he addresses Israel's king as the Messiah his son and all the rulers of the nations are told to pay homage to him and worship him how about this, the, the phrase, with whom I am well pleased? This occurs in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is important because you, you might go, well, Andrew doesn't say in whom I'm well pleased. It says in whom my soul delights. Well, what's really cool is that Jesus quotes this exact verse, Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12, 18. He does a miracle, and he quotes Matthew 12, 18. This is how Jesus words it. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. Jesus changes the wording um, in, when he uses the Isaiah 42. That was Matthew 12, 18. So again, the key here, this person is described as God's servant, who's a chosen one, and whom God himself delights. And what does he do? He brings forth justice to the nations. So when you put, you are my son, with whom am I well pleased? It's pretty obvious what God's saying. This is the king. This is the Messiah. He's the one who has authority. He's the one who has power. He's the one that's going to bring justice to the nations. He's the one in whom you're to worship. It's a declaration of his deity and his authority. Now it's significant to remember again who was there. There were the three disciples and Moses and Elijah. Because Luke records something very important here. When God's voice came from the cloud, he didn't tell the disciples to listen to Moses and Elijah. He didn't say, listen to them. This is exactly what he said when the cloud came over them. He said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. In Israel's history, who did they listen to? Moses. God speak to Moses. The people had to revere Moses. In Elijah's day as a prophet, like a good thing you brought that up today in the, with, your, with the prayer ministry, Elijah, whose God's more powerful, the people returned to the Lord and worship after Baal was defeated um, through Elijah's ministry. But he doesn't even comment on listening to Moses. He doesn't comment on listening to Elijah. They're listening to Jesus shows again his authority and his prominence in God's view over some of Israel's biggest players. And the disciples were there and they heard this. So as I was preparing this week, a question came to my mind that I was struggling to answer. Why did Peter feel the need to even mention his experience of the transfiguration as a means of giving credibility over false teachers? How does understanding Jesus' identity help him give him credibility. Well, in the men's Bible study, we've been talking about how to study the scriptures. One of the key things we talked about a while ago was you have to always look before a passage and after a passage to get its content to see what your passage of scripture might be saying in, in terms of its relevance. So I went back to the verses before to see what was going on there and it was magnificent that I did so because I learned exactly why Peter used this transfiguration experience. 
You see, in all three accounts in the Gospels, what preceded Jesus' prediction, sorry, what preceded the transfiguration was Jesus' prediction of his second coming. Before the transfiguration, he predicted his second coming. Look at Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is, come, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And will then will repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Hold on to those words. Matthew, Mark 9 and Luke 9 are basically are worded identically, so I just copied one. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Who is he speaking to? The disciples. And once he say, you will not taste death, some of you standing here, the disciples, will not see death until you see the coming of Jesus Christ in His second coming, in His majesty, in His glory, in His kingdom. When did the disciples ever see that? They never did. Jesus died. He, he, did, he died. They, he, they saw His first coming, not a second coming. Right after He says that, He makes that prediction. They go up to the mountain and He's transfigured before them. Basically, God was authenticating his kingdom and his power and his glory and he was coming in a second coming by that experience. They saw something up there that blinked. Oh my goodness, this is the guy who's coming back to judge and to redeem his people. That's an incredible thing to think about. That's extremely helpful in understanding why Peter's refers to this experience. What was the false teacher's claim? They scoffed at the idea of the second coming, especially the idea of Jesus coming back as judge. That's what they scoffed at. He ain't coming back. Peter asserts that their teaching about the return of Christ was not based on myth, but as a direct product of eyewitness and earwitness testimony. That event was an affirmation that he was coming back and coming back as judge. And so he tells the readers, in Peter's day, he tells us, you can be assured of that because after we, we were told about this, he was transfigured as a confirmation this was going to happen. I like the way Doug, Douglas Moose says it. He says, as, it, as its name suggests, the transfiguration involves a transformation in Jesus' appearance. But it is a transformation that reveals his true nature. It is this glorious and majestic nature, hidden, as it were, during his earthly life that will be revealed to all the world at the time of his return. Put simply, the transfiguration reveals Jesus as the glorious king, and Peter was there to see it. He therefore has utter confidence that Jesus will return as the glorious king and establish his kingdom in its final and ultimate form. They got a preview of his coming, his glorification and enthronement as the king of kings and lord of lords. The sermon today is a bit more informational and maybe more theological in its nature, but it's important to, to grasp. And I really only have two lessons for us today. First one is this, from verses 12 to 15. 
To be persecuted as a Christian does not mean that one is not loved by God or is outside of His will. Peter, totally, totally connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, an apostle, one whom he loves, realizing through a prophecy that his life was going to come to an end as a follower of Jesus. He didn't feel abandoned by God. He didn't feel like he was outside of God's will. He knew exactly what was happening, and he understood that that was the reality of his life. It didn't make him want to defect in his faith or uh, walk away from the Lord. He knew it was a reality for him. And we may have to face these realities more and more as well as life moves on. Second lesson and final lesson. We can trust the word of God concerning the second coming of Christ and his judgment due to Peter's transfiguration experience. I mean, uh, someone might say to you contextually today, well, I don't believe that God's coming back. I don't believe that Jesus is coming back, especially as a judge. If we understand what Peter is saying here, he's telling us you absolutely can believe that based on what I experienced on the mountain, on that holy mountain. That was his motivation to his listeners to say, wise enough and don't fall, don't fall into these false teachers' uh, heresy. Be careful, guys. Why is this so important? Well, the church is becoming more and more liberal in Western Canada. Or, sorry, in Western culture, I should say, too. Right? Not everywhere. There is growth happening in places, and, and a lot of people are, are doing well and sticking to truth and preaching truth. But as a general statement, a lot of churches are walking away from the foundational truths that they once believed, becoming more and more liberal in their views. And I got a stark reminder of that in New Brunswick in holidays this year. I uh, driving with uh, my family uh, here in New Brunswick while we're on vacation, and I see in the background a uh, church bulletin, like a, a thing outside, and I, I, I get closer, and then I see a picture of a rainbow flag. And I get closer, and it says, it's the United Church, and it says, everybody's welcome here. Well, you know what? Everyone's welcome here too. Everyone's welcome here too. But here's the difference. Jesus said, you can come as you are. But he didn't say you can stay as you are. That's the difference. Everyone's welcome here. I don't care what your background is, what your past is. But we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we live lives that look more like Christ. <coughs>